So I want to invite, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We started this series a couple of weeks ago, and we're still going through it because we got a long way to go. And what we've been doing, we started this series, uh, and the, the name of the series is, I never get tired of saying it, a, a relaxing stroll through the book of Revelation. And uh, because what we're trying to do with this whole series is we're trying to sort of reclaim this book that has kind of uh, become something that I don't, I, I would argue is, was never what that was meant to be. And, and that, which is to say, like a lot of people have taken this book of Revelation and they've taken it to be about sort of like these cosmic, bizarre, scary, terrifying things that are supposed to happen somewhere out in the future about like fire and monsters and all sorts of crazy things. But we, we often forget that this was actually written to a group of people. And it was, it's written by a guy named John. It was written to these seven different churches in Asia Minor. And so one of the questions we're asking with the series is, okay, when John wrote this and sent it to these seven churches, was it supposed to be nonsense to them or was it actually supposed to mean something to them? And one, one of the things we're sort of looking for is what, if, if I was in one of those communities, if you and I were in one of these churches in one of these communities, would we find good news in this book or would it just be some sort of nonsense that was meant for people like thousands of years from now? And so that's, that's sort of the, these are the questions that we're asking with the series. So, the book, if you were here two weeks ago when we started, you saw like the opening chapter is this very big, broad, sort of sweeping picture of essentially what the whole message is. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. That the power that you see is not the actual power that is running the universe. And so it's this massive, subversive sort of message about how power works. And so then after the first chapter, it, uh, it's this really interesting thing where John sort of zooms in into the seven different communities that he's writing to. And essentially he has these like miniature, like, like tiny little mini letters that he writes to each of these groups that says, essentially, like, I know all of us are going through some things, but there are certain things that are very specific to each of these individual communities. And I've mentioned before, I would argue that to understand the book of Revelation, we have to understand what each of these communities was going through and how each of them was similar and how each of them was different and what makes this book specifically interesting to them. So uh, today we're looking at uh, the second letter. Last week we looked at the first letter, which is to a group of people in a city called Ephesus. And today we're looking at a letter uh, to a city whose name I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce. And uh, Smyrna, or if you're from Tennessee, Smyrna. So um, I'll, it, it'll be interchanged. Does anybody have a strong opinion about this? Like, No. Smyrna. Smyrna. Thank you. Okay, that's what I prefer too. But I know, like, like there are people who are like, no, it's Smyrna because they're from Tennessee, and like we mispronounce everything uh, in this part of the country. So, um, so anyway, we're looking at a, we're looking at a letter to a city called Smyrna. Thank you, Allison. And um, and so in uh, verse, we'll just start off and we'll kind of take a look at what's going on here. So in uh, verse eight, it says to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Right. It sounds wrong now when I say it. To, uh, and, and by the way, we mentioned last week, the word angel here in Greek is the word angelos, which literally means messenger. And so he, uh, John is writing specifically to whomever is responsible for conveying like messages to the people. Like, whoever is the messenger in this community, please read this to the people is essentially what he's saying. So to the angel, to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life again. So in other words, I'm writing, so he's writing this, but he says, but there is a power behind what I'm writing, that I'm actually writing to you with the words of Jesus. And so like, it's me talking to you, but there's also like this massive divine power that's sort of driving this message. So uh, then in verse nine, it says, I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life 
as your victor's crown. Now, there's so much going on here. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we're going to come across certain images, certain terms, certain ideas. We're not going to be able to get to them all. It's just there's too much. So what I want to do with this is I want to begin asking, okay, what's the overall idea? What is the general, what is the good news for the people in Smyrna? So let's take a look at what he kind of, let's kind of break down what he says specifically in the beginning. So in verse 9, he says, I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, I, just to get this out of the way right off the bat, the phrase synagogue of Satan, this is a phrase that has kind of gotten co-opted in a really dark, uh, violent kind of way, actually, because I, this, this, this phrase has been used to, in a certain way, sort of um, give people permission to uh, be very, very racist and anti-Semitic towards people who are Jewish. And so uh, I, I have heard preachers use this in a really dark, hateful way. And I want to say right off the bat, that is not what John is doing here. In no way is that what John is doing here. For one simple reason, John is Jewish. The guy writing this, this book is Jewish, and the people he's writing to are largely Jewish. And so this is not about like per, people who are Jewish versus people who are not. That's absolutely not what's going on here. This is something else. So probably, and there are several different theories uh, historically as to what's going on here. And just to, uh, and we don't have to bog down on this all day, just specifically because we will come back to this term later in the book. But there's two theories about where this comes from. One is, is a theory that basically suggests that there was a group of non-Jewish people in the city of Smyrna who basically had an axe to grind against this group of people. And so what they started doing was they started pretending to be Jewish as a way of creating like chaos and, and disturbance among the people, basically, basically like slandering them in like real time. In fact, what's the word that gets used? It says the slander of this group of people. So, so one suggestion is that this, this group of people were, were posing as the, there were other there were other people posing as this group of people as a way of sort of bringing ill will to them in the public eye that's one theory the second theory is that this is actually a, another group of people who were also jewish who were a little bit more fundamentalist and who were a little bit more rigid in terms of like what was and was not allowed in fact there's a whole other book in the new testament called galatians that's a letter to a group of people who were dealing with religious fundamentalism and there's a lot of that kind of language essentially you've got this group of people who were telling them like, if, if you have a church that's based on the idea of God is love and the work is done and it's all like grace and love and peace and hope fuel this whole thing. And then you have this other group of people stepping in and say, no, 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 wait, you have to be circumcised. You have to like ob- obey all these other dietary laws. And if you don't do that, then God actually doesn't love you. And so it's possible that there was um, a little bit of dissonance created by a group of people like this. So. There's, there's no general agreement as to which thing it is, but the overall idea is whatever it was, there was lots and lots of tension between this, the church and this other group of people who had some sort of religious axe to grind against the church. And so what was going on here, and it, this is actually hinted to in the title, actually the word here, Satan, when it says synagogue of Satan, the word Satan here, a lot of times we tend to picture like red count chocula i don't know i mean that's sort of where my brain goes for some reason like a guy with a pitchfork and and horns sometimes a cape i don't know why he like some some artist renderings he's got a cape i'm like where did the cape come from so he's like a super villain and so um and so he's where was it okay so th- this word satan is is actually not a description of a figure like that that the, the very very specifically the word satan is literally in hebrew it's the word accuser so what John is describing here, he's saying there is a group of people who, and he characterizes them as a synagogue of, of the accuser. And he says, what are they doing? They're slandering the people. And so essentially he's, he's using these two words 
like intentionally. He's saying there is slander coming from this other group of people who have basically created like their whole they, they exist in order to slander other people. And so essentially he's saying there's a whole group of people in your town who I, I mean, he's, he's not telling them something they don't know. He's acknowledging there is a group of people in your town who essentially exist to make other people think less of you. There's a whole group of people who are doing everything they can to malign you and make other people think that you are not who you really are. And so he's essentially he's acknowledging there is a certain amount of pain that comes from knowing that other people are bent against you and knowing that like have you ever walked into a room and you like get you can like feel it like someone's been talking about you you know what I mean it's like imagine if that was like the whole town and so like he's essentially saying like I understand that everywhere you go there are people who have lots and lots of negative opinions about you that are not necessarily even true and so there's lots of slander going on but it actually gets worse and so in verse ten. He says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution. So, um, so not only are there people who are like, not only is their reputation like going down and down and down in the, in the public eye because of whatever this other group of people is doing, but it's actually landing some of them in jail. Like people are actually going to jail as a result of some of this like negative attention that's being drawn. And so you've got slander, you've got people being thrown in jail, but also there's this other thing going on. And so go back to verse nine. And this is really where it kind of, we're going to center most of our attention. At the the beginning of verse nine, he writes, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Now it's interesting that he mentions poverty because the city of Smyrna was actually a very, very wealthy city. The city of Smyrna was actually one of the wealthiest cities in this part of the world. And the reason was, is because it was a major trade hub for people who were here or who were coming either from the East or the West to do business with people from the other regions of the world. And so actually it was in competition. Ephesus was actually the biggest trade hub in the world. Smyrna was like a close second. And so like lots and lots of people who live in the city of Smyrna are very, very wealthy, specifically because they understand that this is where everybody comes to trade. If, like, if you're from the West and you need like fabric or other sorts of things from the East, you would go to either Smyrna or Ephesus and you would trade with people. And so you've got lots of people who live in this community who are just like making money hand over fist just based on like incoming and outgoing trade. There's lots of that going on in this part of the world. Like most of Smyrna is getting richer and richer and richer every single day. So why is this group of people getting poorer and poorer and poorer? Maybe it has something to do with the slander and the jail. Maybe what's going on here is somehow there is something going on. There is something in the air that has essentially made this entire group of people like unwelcome and unwanted in the community at large. And so they're, they're being slandered. They're being thrown in jail and nobody's doing business with any of them. And so now you've got in, in essentially what would, would have been like the South Lake of ancient Turkey, you've got... <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> so you've got, you've got this one group of people who all of a sudden, like they're losing money every day and they're getting poorer and poorer and poorer. And so John writes to this group of people who are, are undergoing this very specific kind of tension. Like they're losing, like, they're, um, like all of their resources are dwindling. People are going to jail. Everybody seems to have it, have it out against them. People are talking about them in really, really harsh, negative ways publicly. And I would imagine there's a real desperation and a real loneliness that comes with that feeling. Have you ever been in a situation where it feels like all these things are happening all at once and it's all piling on top of you and it's almost like the world gets smaller and smaller, like all the walls are closing in and it's like everywhere you go, it just keeps getting worse. Like I, um, I, I, I was going through 
about, about a year or so ago, I, I had like sort of a, a string of weeks where like every single time someone would call me or text me, it was like bad news. And so I was actually sitting, I was at lunch with somebody one time and I felt my phone vibrate in my pocket and I like had like a mini panic attack. I was like, oh my gosh, what's going on now? And it was like my weather app telling me that there was like a storm or something. And so... Um, but because there, there, there comes this moment where it becomes like every single thing, like the entire universe is like bent against you. And the whole thing gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller to where all you see are the pain and the problems and the torment. That's what's going on with this group of people. And so John writes to this people and he says, I know that everybody has, it seems like everybody's out to get you. And I know some of you are being thrown in jail. And I know all of you are going broke trying to stand in, like to remain true to this community that we've started this community of hope and grace and love this, this resurrection community and i know it's hard and i know it's costing you something and so he says i know he says i know that you're poor and then he says this really interesting thing where he says and yet you are rich which is a really weird thing to say to people who are really poor and so this actually comes from, from an interesting thing because in the new testament we're going to actually i want to invite you if you have a bible take a look at second uh, corinthians chapter 8 and we'll take a look at that in just a second. But what's going on here, and there's this really interesting thing that happens all through the New Testament, where you have writers who are sort of playing around with the notion of poor and the notion of rich. Because we tend to think of poor and rich in the same way that most people do, which is poor means you don't have very much, and rich means you do. And so it tends to just, I mean, it's, it's, it's as black and white as it can possibly be. If you, are, if you have more things than most other people, you are rich. If you have less things than most other people, you are poor. However, John is writing to people who have less things, and he says, I know you're poor, but you're actually rich, which, means, which makes no sense at all. So... In order to sort of understand sort of the bigger concept here, we're going to look at another part of the New Testament. So there's this writer named Paul who's writing to one of the other early churches in a city called Corinth. And so he's writing this letter. This is actually the, I I know it's called 2 Corinthians, but it's actually probably like the third or the fourth letter that he's exchanged with this group of people. So he's had this ongoing dialogue with this church. And at one point, he begins telling them this really interesting story. And I'm going to read this, and it's going to make no sense. And so then we'll kind of take a look at what, like maybe the context around what he's talking about, and maybe it'll begin to make a little bit more sense. So take a look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. Paul writes, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Which, by the way, three phrases that don't ever belong in the same sentence. Overflowing joy, extreme poverty, and rich generosity. Like, these these phrases have nothing to do with each other, and yet they're all sitting together in one sentence. So then in verse 3, it says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people. So what's going on? Now, at this time in in history... Uh, this, this whole church Jesus movement was actually very, very new. In fact, it started, it started in uh, sometime uh, around the year 30 in Jerusalem. And we t- if you were here on Easter, we talked about how like, the whole thing kind of was, was born in Jerusalem, this, this resurrection movement. And so it, the whole thing starts in Jerusalem. And so it doesn't take long for the whole thing to kind of take flight and begin moving out into other parts of the world. Because all of a sudden, if you start telling people who live under the thumb of Caesar and, and like the oppression of like these gods who get more and more angry and demand more and more and all of a sudden you enter the world or you enter into the setting and you begin saying no 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 the work is done it's it's, it's grace it's love it's the whole 
thing is the work is done. You are forgiven. You are free. All of a sudden, people are really interested in this thing that they call good news. And so the thing begins to spread like crazy. And it begins to move out and out and out into other parts of the world. And eventually, it reaches, uh, it reaches a, a certain region of the ancient Near East called Macedonia. In fact, you have a letter. If you have a... This is... Bible trivia, but um, if, if you if you looked through the New Testament, you'll find these two letters that are called First and Second Thessalonians. It's written to a city called Thessalonica. Thessalonica is the capital of Macedonia. So, like you have you have this movement that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and all of a sudden now you are in Macedonia. Now the thing about Macedonia is this area at this time was incredibly poor. Everybody was poor in Macedonia. This is a very impoverished region of the globe, and so. Now, what happened is at a certain point, the, the tension between not just the Christians in Jerusalem, but also the, the Jewish communities as well, began to really get ratcheted up between them and the Roman Empire. In fact, a, about 15 years after 2 Corinthians was written, uh, Rome basically decided they had had enough of everybody who lived in Jerusalem. And so they basically went in and they sacked the whole city and they destroyed the temple. And so... Um, and w- which is a, actually continues to be a sore spot in history. If I, I, I was in Rome. Uh, my wife and I were in Rome several years ago, and there's an archway that celebrates the, because anytime there's a major military victory, they build an archway as a celebration of it that, for people to pass through and celebrate. The archway that celebrates the destruction of Jerusalem is called the Arch of Titus, and it's the only archway in all of Rome that you can't walk under. Like they won't, like they have like ropes preventing people from walking under it because just walking under it is seen as an act of like anti-Judaism. It's, it's seen as an act of anti-Semitism because it's such a like, it, it is such a harmful, destructive sort of thing. So that's what's going on in Jerusalem. This is just about 15 years before Jerusalem is just utterly decimated by the Romans. And so you've got, and so the tension just ratchets up and up and up. And so what ends up happening is this guy, Paul, who's going from city to city to city to talk about the love and grace and resurrection of Jesus, is now really deeply concerned with what's going on with, with his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And so what they, what they start to do is they start to take up a collection. So every single time Paul goes through town, he, he, he lets everybody know, like, listen, we're, we're, we're taking up a collection so that when we go back to Jerusalem, we can do something to support the, people, the churches in Jerusalem. And so they were doing this in every city. And the only place they didn't do this was in the Macedonian churches. And the reason they didn't ask anybody in the Macedonian churches for money is because they were poor. They've got nothing. So that, like, you don't want to go to somebody who has nothing and like, make them feel guilty for not being able to help you on, in whatever you're doing. But what ends up happening is the Macedonians, like, they find out that they got skipped. And they're really upset about it because they want to help. So now, all of a sudden, this passage in 2 Corinthians makes way more sense. So let's take a look at it again. He writes, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the the service to the Lord's people. So why did they urgently plead? Because I got skipped. And they have like this deep, like this beating heart for there are people suffering and we, and yeah, it's going to hurt. And yeah, we're going to have to like really dig deep, but we want to help because people are suffering and we can do something about it. And so he talks about how poor they are, but then he talks about how rich with generosity they are. So all of a sudden 
And again, throughout the New Testament, you find the concepts of poor and, and rich, the, the whole thing, we're, we're playing with these ideas. Because for us, poor and rich are about, do you have a lot or do you have a little? But for Paul and for John, poor and rich actually has nothing to do with what you have. It has to, in fact, what, what, is, what does Paul say is fueling the generosity? He says they were filled with grace. So for, for Paul, rich has to do with something that's connected with grace. Now, grace is the idea. It's essentially grace is an awareness of I have received something. And the thing that I have received is a gift. And so now in possession of this gift, I can now ask myself, how can I use this gift to offer something now to other people? Grace is about, I I am aware that I've received. And now what can I do to give? It's about like this thing that flows through you. So for Paul, rich is not about what do you have? Rich is about, am I aware of what I have? And am I empowered with some sort of grace? I would argue that poor in the New Testament is, about, is not about what do you not have. Poor is about disempowerment. Poor is the feeling that you have when you have no choices. Poor is the feeling that you have when, like I said, when the world continues to shrink smaller and smaller and smaller, when the walls are closing in and you feel like you have no options. And you feel like you have nothing to give. And you feel like you have nothing to contribute to whatever else is going on. All you see is your own need to survive. And so poor is not about what do you have. Poor is about are you disempowered? And then by contrast, rich is about empowerment. Rich is a way of saying you have something you have in your possession is a gift. And are you aware of that gift? Are you grateful for that gift? And what are you now going to do with that gift? Poor is about, I have no power and I have no choices. Rich is about, oh, you have power and you do have choices. To tell a group of people who live in the midst of everybody's talking about them, like people are getting thrown in jail, everybody's, everybody's businesses are going broke. To tell this group of people, you have power and you have choices. This is, I mean, they would call it good news. This is a beautiful, fresh word of hope to a group of people who feel disempowered. So... <laughs> Does anybody feel disempowered? I mean, I, I realize we live in a very empowered time and place. We live in 21st century America. Most of us own more than one car. Most of us own more than one cell phone. And uh, most of us get at least two or three meals a day with no trouble. So it's difficult. I think one of the reasons revelation is difficult for a lot of us is because disempowerment is is difficult for us to identify with. But if you really dig into it, how many of us every day experience some kind of disempowerment. Not in the same way as necessarily this group of people in Smyrna, but, but, Smyrna, but definitely some kind of disempowerment. Have, have you gone through something that has made the world feel really small? Have you experienced some level of suffering? Or maybe like multiple, like, like, like I said, like, have you gone through one of those days or one of those weeks or one of those years where it feels like every time the phone rings, it's bad news. And every single time something happens, it just chips away at whatever like hope and like, like any sort of morale that you've got. It's just like, it, it's just like going down the drain because we only have so much to give and we only have so much energy and we only have so much hope. And then eventually it just feels like we feel, we feel poor. We feel disempowered. And so I think one of the things that the writers in the New Testament are challenging us with is, like, are you really poor or have you just forgotten that you still have choices? Have you just forgotten that you have been given all kinds of things that are a gift and now there's a way for you to engage that part of your story? I, um, 
one of my one of my best friends in the world. His name's Chris. Uh, a couple of years ago, he and his wife Michelle had um, they were they were expecting a baby, and at some point during the third trimester, uh, they they lost the baby. There was they had a miscarriage, and um, they, there was a little girl. They were going to name her Mary Claire, and um, they were devastated. I mean, this is one of those things, and I, I, I know that. I mean, there's this is not an unusual thing. There are people who um, there are people all around us who have suffered through this, and they and understandably, this is a very painful thing to go through. And I remember talking to my friend about it and he was just telling me like, yeah, it's, it's a lonely, sad kind of thing. He said the worst part of it was when the hospital called to like collect what they still owed, you know? And like, yeah, like there's a, there's, there's a real bite to that in that moment when you're, when you're trying to grieve and you're trying to plan a funeral for an unborn child and then someone calls asking for money. And so, um, and so my friend and his wife, Michelle, they, um, in, in sort of in the aftermath of this, what they decided to do was they decided to create a nonprofit organization called the Mary Claire Project. And essentially, and they live in Austin, and uh, they have two locations that they sort of work from, and uh, one is in Austin and one is actually here in Fort Worth. And what they do is they, they essentially have decided, like, there are lots of people who go through this, and there are lots of people who don't know how to grieve about this, and there are lots of people who don't even know how to talk about it. So we're going to create space for people who have lost unborn children and we're going to create space for them to grieve. We're going to provide resources so that they can honor them and have a funeral if um, if they want to, and so to really truly treat that with with the honor and dignity that they that they deserve. And so, um, and so, what happened? This horrible event happens to them, and they feel poor. They feel disempowered. There's nothing more powerless than when something is going on in your body and you have no control over it. And so there is, uh, and so there is a real sense of disempowerment here. And what they did in the, in the wake of that was they began to ask, is there, do we still have choices? Is there some sort of grace that we have that will help us to offer something life-giving and helpful to someone else? And so it turns out in the midst of their poverty, it turns out they were quite rich. Um, in fact, I think it's really profound. One of the things that Paul says to, this, uh, to the church in, uh, in the letter about the Macedonians, when he's saying, like, you guys are never going to believe what the Macedonians did. One of the things he said was they gave, uh, like, he says they gave beyond what they were able, which is essentially a way of saying, like, do you have any idea what you're capable of? Do you have any idea? Like, we think we have, like, this limit, and it turns out we have way more power, and we have way more choices. We have way more resources than we ever thought possible. So, my friends Chris and Michelle, they start this thing because it turns out they've got way more grace than they ever knew that they had in them. And so, um, and I, I heard a pastor one time describe this, this kind of situation as, like, let's say you're walking through the desert and you're carrying this really, really heavy backpack. And, like, the backpack is weighing you down and you can't drop it. You cannot let the backpack go, but you, you have to keep carrying it. And, you're, um, and, and so eventually you, you come across somebody else in the desert and they don't have anything. And so you take the backpack off and you open it up and it turns out there's, lots of, there's like, bottles of water in the backpack. And so now this thing, this heavy thing that you've been carrying can actually offer life to somebody else who is also going through this. And so, like, have you ever, been, have you ever gone through something and you feel like, it's like you feel disempowered. You feel small. You feel like the whole thing is crushing you. And then someone comes alongside you and says, yeah, I've been there and it's awful. There's something really, really powerful that happens there. It's like water in the desert. And so maybe that is, that's the grace. Maybe that's the, you've got more than you realize. You feel disempowered, but it turns out you have lots of power. And that isn't to minimize the suffering or to minimize the pain. In fact, I think what it does is it gives it meaning. It gives it purpose. And, and it, it kind of, um, rede- not redeems it, but sort of 
um, gives new life to it. Because quite frankly, a lot of times when we suffer, we feel like, what's the point to anything? But then all of a sudden we encounter somebody who's going through this too. And now, now there's life. Now there's grace where there wasn't anything before. So how many of us feel disempowered? How many of us were in a situation where we feel poor? We feel crushed in some sort of way. We feel like we have no more choices. And the beautiful thing that we are continually reminded of is, no, you still have choices. You still have power because you still have grace. There is still, and so questions begin to rise up. And one question becomes, am I aware of what I already have? Because rich and poor is not about what do you have and what do you not have. Rich and poor is about, do I have an awareness and a sense of gratitude for what I actually do have? Are there people in my life who will support me? Are there people who continue to show love in the midst of the struggle? Do I, and I mean, really, you can go down to like the very, very base kinds of things. Did I sleep indoors last night? Do I have, did I get enough food yesterday for me and my family? Do, like, are the basic, like, hierarchy of needs, are like the things at the very bottom, are those things met? Because at that point, we can begin to say, okay, that's a start. So now how do we build, how do we build out and how do we really begin to assess, like, okay, actually, as it turns out, we, we feel poor because we feel like we have no choices, but it turns out we are quite rich because we still, there's still some sort of power and choice that we have left. So, um, so I think the first question it raises is, am I aware of the choices that I do have? Am I aware that I actually do have some sort of power? Am I aware of all the things that in my life are a gift? And so the second question is, so w- with the awareness of all these things that I have, do I practice any sort of generosity. Now, I know that anytime a pastor starts talking about generosity, there's sort of this, there's this part of our brain that kind of goes off because we, we expect, like, oh, here comes the giving sermon. And I'm, I'm really, I'm very bothered by the reality of that because the thing is, generosity is a huge part of what it means to follow Jesus. And I'm really, um, it bugs me that that has sort of been hijacked as a way for people to raise money and to, um, and to just get more and more. And, uh, and that's not to say, by the way, that, that when people give, it isn't significant. In fact, I will go ahead and say outright, there are people in our community who give very generously to our church. And if they didn't, we would no longer be able to exist as a church. The reason we exist is because there are people who have taken a look at some point in their life at what they have, and they've said, this is a gift. And so now with this gift, I I will pour this into something that I believe in. And thankfully, one of the things that they have chosen to do that with is our church. And so... And so I'm deeply grateful to anyone who ever gives anything, to, who pours any sort of life or grace into our church. That is a gift, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. However, I also understand there are people who, like the financial set, like that's not really where their gifts are. In fact, for a lot of people, like that's, a, that, that's not an option at this point. And so it becomes a question of like, okay, well, what, what do I have? And in what ways can I begin to channel what I do have into offering it to other people? In what ways do I feel poor, but I'm actually quite rich? And so we begin to look at like, what do I, like, what kind of time? Do I have enough time to, to offer service to other people? Do I, have, um, you know, do I have the ability to pick up the phone and talk to somebody for a little while? Do I have the ability to, um, to offer some sort of comfort to someone who's gone through something very similar to me. And so is there any way, like I would argue that when my friends started this project for people who have, um, who have had miscarriages, that's an act of generosity because it costs something. It costs time. It costs resources. It costs any, anytime someone sends them an email or needs like an event put together that costs them something. So to do this is an act of generosity. So we have poor and we have rich. And it turns out it has nothing to do with what you have. It has everything to do with what do I have and how do I channel that 
to help other people. I know people who have very, very little, who by most standards would be considered poor. However, they're so generous and open with what they have, I would argue that, that those people are quite rich. Conversely, I know, I know people who have a lot of stuff but are so worried that they're going to lose that that they hold on to all of it and they use none of it to help anybody else. It's, it's been my experience, and I've worked in churches and nonprofit organizations for like, like almost two decades, which I don't love talking about that, but... Um, <laughs> But one of the things I've observed is like a person's like, phys- like physical financial wealth is actually in no way an indicator about whether or not that person is going to be generous in any way. Um, some, some of the poorest people I know are some of the richest people I know. And some of the richest people I know are some of the poorest people I know. Because the question rich and poor have nothing to do with what you have. It's about am I aware of what I have and how do I channel that in a way that actually helps offer grace and hope and love to the people who need it. If I look at what Jesus says, there's this uh, setting in Mark chapter 12 where Jesus is, uh, they're in a religious, they're like in a temple situation. They're kind of people watching, which I love. And, um, and at a certain point in uh, Mark twelve forty one, it says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So once again, we have Jesus playing around with the ideas of how we perceive rich and poor. As it turns out, rich and poor are not about what you have. Rich and poor are about what do I have and how am I taking the things that I have and helping other people with those things. And so you have power. You, you may feel powerless. You may feel poor. You may feel disempowered. But it turns out you have lots of power. You have choices. And so the question becomes, what do I do with what I have? Jesus, or Paul, uh, John, wow, everybody. Um, <laughs> I just channeled my dad trying to remember which, which of his sons he's trying to like yell at at the moment. But um, John, in writing this letter to the people in Revelation, to the people in Smyrna, are, um, he's trying to tell them, like, I know you feel disempowered. I know it feels crushing and the weight of all this is unbearable, but it turns out you still have choices. You still have power. And so if you feel disempowered, you still have choices and you still have power. You have more than you realize. All of life is a gift and whatever it is you have, that's part of the gift. So the question becomes, what do you do with the gift? Rich and poor are not the thing that we thought they were. So may you examine and be grateful for what you have. And may you begin to ask questions about how do I take this and channel it as if it were grace? How do I I understand that it's all a gift and now it's my job to pour something out for someone else? You have way more power than you realize. Because when when, when, when things get small, when we feel disempowered, the world gets very small. But when we become empowered, when we begin to understand we have all kinds of choices and we can help all kinds of people who need help, all of a sudden the world gets quite large because we begin to see things that we never were going to see before. So may the world get much bigger for you and may you begin to see the power that you have. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for reminding us that we still have choices and that we still have power. And for those of us who feel crushed or disheartened or burdened or weary, may we begin to heal May we begin to uh, find some sort of peace in the midst of that. 
And may we receive the good news that while we may feel poor, we are actually quite rich. While we may feel disempowered, we actually have lots of power and we have lots of choices and we have lots of grace. So may we receive this grace and may we ask questions about what it means to pour it out for others. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. We're out early, which no one has ever complained about. Um, so thanks so much. Don't forget, if you want to bring your kids up Wednesday night, uh, we would love to, ages four and up, we would love to see them. And uh, there are offering boxes in the back if you want to give. If not, that's fine. And uh, thank you. Grace, sorry, grace and peace be with you. Thank you.